I think you're going to start to see on the, let's say, digitally native side, the entrance of more traditional financial institutions in the space um, and, and kind of a new settlement and, and regulatory model. And then I think lastly, is you're going to start to see even further movements towards decentralized applications. So Texas Global, sparking innovative thoughts. It has definitely been a whirlwind year for cryptocurrency. Despite the collapse of a major crypto exchange platform, there's still great potential for this field, given the expectations for Web3. So how can players in the industry survive the crypto winter? Let's talk about it with one of the world's leading blockchain security service providers for moving, storing, and issuing digital assets, Fireblocks. Sadika, you're listening to another episode of Texas Global Podcast with me, Chawadatyongjiranon, a global content editor at Texas Media. And today with me is Stephen Richardson, the head of APEC and Senior Vice President of Financial Products at Fireblocks. He's had great experience in both traditional and crypto-focused financial institutions, and his role at Fireblocks involves structuring, developing, and evaluating strategic opportunities with traditional financial services and native digital asset companies that are aligned with the growth of Fireblocks platform. Hello, Stephen. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, we're so happy that we have the opportunity to talk to you today because this topic, I think, is in everybody's mind in terms of security and the future of you know digital assets. But before we take a look at the issues, can you tell us a little bit about Fireblocks? Yeah, so Fireblocks is a, a little over four years old. Um, we're a digital asset infrastructure company, uh, meaning we're not ourselves a financial services company like a bank or a payments company, um, you know, in that way, we really are a backbone infrastructure. So really what we do is we provide um, the secure infrastructure that you would need to be able to operate in digital assets. So think about things like the wallet infrastructure, so how you manage mm, the private keys that hold your assets on the blockchain, as well as all the network and connectivity elements that you would need. So how you connect to different liquidity venues like exchanges and market makers, uh, how you manage some of the operational elements of utilizing digital assets as forms of payment, um, how you interact with things like DeFi protocols, uh, all of that technology and all of that kind of broader technological infrastructure is what we provide at Fireblocks and we do it at scale. So really enabling folks to get leading uh, security infrastructure while not having to build that themselves and understanding that they can leverage uh, a team like Fireblocks to, to be able to get to market quickly and, and offer clients to their products or for their own trading purposes. A very big role indeed in the industry. And I'm, I'm, and I'm sure you've done so much in the past four years. So, you know, with your experience in, in this field, um, what is your opinion on the funding winter the world is experiencing right now? But do you agree that there is a winter or uh, and if so, how long do you think it's going to last? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think across the board, I think not just in things like uh, digital assets, but I think broader uh, investment basis, like we've seen a little bit of a slowdown uh, that can be in tech uh, and in digital assets across the board. Uh, I think it's it's quite interesting, right? We've still seen folks raise. I think you saw uh, folks like Chainalysis recently raise. I think really good businesses with really strong business models, and I think generally strong infrastructure players, uh, I think in this market are still able to raise capital, right? If you look at um, the space overall, there's been an influx of of, of cash 
to large VC firms uh, across the board. Many funds have been raised over the last few years with significant capital that they still need to deploy. What I think it has happened is there's been more prudence around how and where to deploy that capital. Uh, and there's been more due diligence, I think, in the wake of some of the broader events across the, the board to make sure that when capital is allocated to different companies, uh, they're really strong business models. They're really strong operational teams. There's really strong governance in place. And so I think there's just this process of enhanced due diligence, not necessarily a, a broader winter. I think, you know, for businesses that do have uh, very strong pillars from a product perspective, a very strong product market fit, um, and a very strong like executional capacity, uh, those folks are still able to raise in this environment. Um, and, and I think that is a, that's a good thing, right? And I think the enhanced due diligence and, and kind of scrutiny uh, that, you know, VC firms and, and other players are making in the space to ensure that their investments are secure and that they're able to return uh, capital back to their investors, I think is a good thing. I know it's it's kind of tough to kind of uh, estimate how long this this winter is going to be, but I'm sure a lot of people are like you say the broader sense. Um, would you say how how much of it would eat into like 2023? Because a lot of people have high hopes for 23. They're kind of like just tired of 22. Yeah, look, I, I think 22 was an interesting year, right? I think at the start of 22, um, you know, things were accelerating. Obviously, um, you know. Things like unemployment globally and in places like the U.S. were down. There was a tight labor market as a, as a whole. Uh, broader macro factors looked, you know, relatively positive. And obviously, we've we've made the turn. Uh, and in the digital asset space, we've experienced some things that I think uh, weren't fantastic for kind of the broader um, view on the space. Um, I think the end of 2022 and the beginning of 2023 at least in the digital asset space, will be a point where people regroup, right? I, I think mm. we've seen crypto winters before. I think this is the third one I've experienced. And generally in those bases, you know, the good companies, the strong companies regroup and continue to build, right? And their new entrants and upstarts, right, with lower expectations for delivery in the market that come in and, and in some ways uh, potentially have an, a, a, a means of disintermediating or, or causing a little bit of a ripple in the space. So, We've seen this before. I think um, from my perspective, you know, you're looking at at least mid 2023 before I mm. think, you know, probably things make a, a more aggressive turnaround. I think broadly speaking, every company, every technology company in the space is is really thinking critically around the products that they have, the different market segments that they're entering, uh, the broader, broader operational framework to make sure that they're prepared to uh, operate in that type of environment till at least mid 2023, if not the end of 2023, um, and 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 go from there. But I, I think from our perspective, uh, it's still an exciting space to be in this this digital asset space. There's still a lot of really interesting and unique products that are being developed, or a lot of really interesting projects that are being created, um, and, and so that leaves us excited going into 2023. You know, you're talking about regrouping and and kind of like. You know, this is not the first winter we've we've seen. So, from from your experience, um, what can entrepreneurs do to survive it? Yeah. So, look in the, in the digital space, uh, this winter feels different, right? So, mm. I think for me, uh, the previous two winters, right, there was a question of validating the technology behind digital assets, right? Mm -hmm. uh, is it a scam? Is it a fraud? Is it real? Right. And I think if you look at this particular winter, in some ways, a lot of it was self-inflicted, um, you know, in, in terms of like some of the governance and issues around credit in the space. 
Uh, and that's unfortunate, right? But I think we've had a validation of the technology, right? And we're seeing the technology being applied in use cases outside of the crypto native segment. So banks and other institutions are starting to step in this space, maybe from a real asset perspective rather than from a, a digitally native perspective, but that feels different. Now, from an entrepreneur uh, standpoint, I think my view on it is these type of environments force you to focus on finding product market fit force you to focus on building products, not because there's just so much opportunity out there, but mm. because the execution basis, uh, it has to be important, right? I, I think in bull markets, you see a lot of potentially interesting ideas. You see a lot of companies uh, operating in so many different market segments uh, and not being able to scale, right? Because you know it's difficult to scale a product across that many market segments. Or two, just, you know, being um, kind of, uh, you know, growing too fast, right? And mm -hmm. so I think in some of the ways, this type of market for forces you to understand what is the value that you're going to drive in the market? How do you drive that value? Who are your first set of beta customers? Uh, who are you working with and building ecosystem plays with? Uh, and how do you then launch a product that would be successful? And I think that's a good thing for the space. It's something that at Fireblocks we think about all the time even though we're we're quite large and, and scaled at the moment, we think about what's the right product market fit. We think about what new segments should we enter and how do we enter those markets and, and how are we successful when we do enter those markets. We think about what are the right ecosystem plays to, to basically leverage and to uh, partner with. And those questions are questions that you know have enhanced scrutiny at, at a point like this. They have a they have scrutiny for fireblocks, I think, at all points, but even more so during a, a period in which uh, it's critical to be cautious about the resources that you have and how you deploy those resources. Well, yeah, well said. I think uh, in in obstacles of you know big or small, I think it really is an opportunity for, and we've seen it in the past for for a sector or industry to 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 get better to sharpen, you know, themselves. Mm -hmm. um, with that said, uh, what what do you think is, or from your perspective, what do you think the digital asset landscape will be in 2023 right now? Yeah, so I think I look at it in two different ways. Uh, so so my job is to look at broader financial markets, right? And, and so I'm not particularly only tied to the digital landscape. I think in the for trad, traditional financial institutions, financial market infrastructure, central banks, we're starting to see a move towards tokenization of real assets. So things like fiat currencies. I know in places like Thailand, there's exploration of retail CBDCs by the central bank. Um, we're seeing tokenization of things like carbon credits, ESG bonds, um, you know, and other real assets. I think that's really exciting. And, and the question is, how does the technology that exists in the crypto native space play into what's happening in the traditional financial services space. So you look at projects like Project Guardian in Singapore, where they used a decentralized application uh, alongside of tokenized real assets and tokenized fiat currencies. Mm -hmm. This bridging of basically what we're seeing in the crypto native space, plus the real asset side of the traditional financial services space is really unique and interesting, right? And, and how DVP settlement will happen uh, in, in these markets, I think, with the tokenization uh, of these assets, I think is a really exciting thing moving into 2023. On the digitally native side, I think you're going to start to see a restructuring of things like settlement models in the space, right? So, Right now, you have these really big centralized institutions. You're right, your large exchanges, 
that were mm -hmm. operating as both the custodian and the um, exchange venue, right? And in traditional markets, those are separated or they're really licensed. Um, and you're starting to see this idea of that right market structure come into play, right? And I think that will be a, a huge question in terms of what that future market structure looks like in 2023. I think you're going to see and start to understand what disruption from financial, traditional financial services looks like. So in the US, you had Fidelity start to offer brokerage of Bitcoin, uh, of digital assets, right? Fidelity is a trusted uh, venue, is a, a trusted counterparty. Uh, it's a large financial services organization with a large balance sheet, right? And you're seeing them kind of step in and play in, in an area where typically it was only crypto natives. Uh, BNY Mellon, for example, with their custodial offering, again, stepping into an area that was typically only held by crypto natives. So I think you're going to start to see on the, let's say, digitally native side, the entrance of more traditional financial institutions in the space um, and, and kind of a new settlement and, and regulatory model. And then I think lastly, is you're going to start to see even further movements towards decentralized applications. So if you look at this space right now, everyone takes what we call technology risk, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you take it when you have a custodial platform, you take it if you have a ledger, you take it across the board, smart contracts, right? But we've seen kind of the failure of a lot of centralized entities, right? Where decisions mm. were made outside of programming, right? Risk decisions were made by people and not by algorithms that are mm. enforced from a technological perspective. And so I think if you look at kind of the view around things like DeFi, right? Decentralized lending pools, DEXs, et cetera, you've seen kind of uh, enthusiasm towards the way they've been able to execute uh, without seeing the same problems that a lot of the centralized venues have, right? And so I think there will be a lot more concentrated attention on really shoring up the risk around smart contracts, but leveraging these different DeFi applications to basically offer different services into the market without the risk that we've seen from the centralized institutions. So I think that will be another really interesting thing to watch in 2023. Very interesting indeed. I, I think very positive uh, of perspective in, in what is potential potential in this field. But we can't ignore, though, the elephant in the room. There right. has been a recent collapse of a major crypto exchange platform that has impacted um, quite a much uh, in, in the industry. Uh, how how do you think it has impacted from your perspective? Um, and, you know, from, from the point of view of Fireblocks, are there ways or technology that can be used to prevent future collapses? Yeah, look, so obviously it's unfortunate, right? Um, I think we're letting it play out, right? I think um, the regulators, uh, law enforcement, all of those folks have been involved or are getting involved, right? And I think we'll see kind of uh, how this whole um you know, incident plays out and, and and you know, who's responsible and culpable for what seems to be a pretty large failure. Um, I think from our perspective, right, it, it plays into some of the themes I talked about earlier, right? So mm -hmm. the idea that there's been these really large centralized institutions in a very decentralized space was kind of antithetical to like the whole idea, right? So for mm -hmm. us, uh, as a self-custodial platform, right, providing technology to different institutions to be able to hold their own assets uh, and manage that, it becomes even more important to relay the importance of this type of technology and, and mitigating risk against centralized entities. And that's something we're paying a lot of attention to. I think secondarily, there's more attention to like settlements infrastructure. And we're working on a few products 
with a few partners, including some exchanges that we think really allow uh, counterparties to, to gain efficiencies while trading with each other, but limit some of the counterparty risk uh, by putting their assets on all on the different exchanges. So there's a lot of exciting things. We look at solving problems from a technological perspective. We don't want to provide a central intermediary. We don't want to be the central intermediary. So when we ask ourselves, you know, we see this problem of settlement of counterparty risk in the digital asset space. How do we solve that utilizing technology and what we have? And how do we work with different partners to basically scale that out over time? That's what we're thinking about on our side. So obviously, like I said, it's it's unfortunate what happened. Um, but I, I think the space is relatively resilient, right? I think banks and financial institutions now start to see a real opportunity to gain a foothold, right? They have what I think a lot of digital asset native companies lost, which is trust, right? And so you trust the CM Commercial Bank, you trust the DBS, you trust the JP Morgan, you trust the Bank of America. The reason you trust them is they have credit from central banks, right? They can go mm -hmm. to the central bank and get credit uh, and you anticipate that they won't fail or central banks won't allow those banks to fail, right? So there's this double, let's say, reinforcement there that I think you'll start to see financial institutions take advantage of. And then for the crypto native space, it'll be important to figure out new technological applications that mitigate this idea of loss of trust in centralized entities. Um, and, and that's a result of what's happened here. Um, and, and so it'll be important for these centralized entities to adapt over the next year or two in order to stay relevant. Well said, well said. Um, and when you talk about new technology, Fireblocks has, uh, you know, MPC technology that has you know been pioneered by you, uh, which is unique. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about you know, the features of, of this technology and and uh, what can we expect in the future to be interesting technology or technology that could be used together, for example, ZK Proof? Yeah. So, so look, I, I think what slightly makes Firebox a little bit different is at our, at our core, we're a cybersecurity company, right? If you're operating on blockchain, it's a cybersecurity issue. It's not a financial services issue, right? Um, so you have to think about the risks from a cybersecurity perspective. And for us, we we have a team of cryptography experts and of research and development experts that basically have thought through and are thinking about constantly how to mitigate the different risks from a cybersecurity perspective. And one of those is by leveraging what we call multi-party computation. Multi-party computation is something that you're seeing the broader industry move towards. Even folks that were using multi-sig, which is, let's say, the previous generation of private key security have all started to shift towards utilizing multi-party computation. The one advantage of multi-party computation is this idea of single point of compromise, right? So let's think about it. I like to draw a very easy parallel. You have a castle. That castle has a lot of gold. Think about the gold as your private key. Um, the idea is that basically there are lots of different compartments and rooms where you're putting that gold. There are lots of different areas where you're guarding it to make sure that you mitigate uh, a person from stealing that gold. Now, mm -hmm. there's this idea of basically a single point of compromise. So let's say you had your gold and you had your gold all in one room behind one door, right? If I'm a malicious actor, right, what I do is concentrate all my efforts on getting through that one door, right? So now you have to defend it like any private key security infrastructure should, but you've concentrated the risk to one single point, right? And in multi-sig, this idea of the private key coming together represented this one point of risk, 
right? Where a malicious actor could really focus a lot of their attention on compromising or getting access to that private key when it comes together. That's multi-sig. Now, multi-party computation, what you do is actually split that private key into what we call key shares or key shards. And not mm -hmm. during the genesis of the private key or during the signing of the private key does that private key share come together all at once to sign a transaction. So really, throughout the whole process and the life cycle of really interacting with the blockchain and signing transactions, this private key, which actually controls access to your wallet or to your tokens and your ability to move those assets on chain, it never comes together in one place. Right, And that's the benefit of multi-party computation. It makes it harder right for a single point of compromise to occur because you can split those different key shares up and make it harder for someone to gain access to all of those different key shares now from our perspective at fireblocks while mpc is extremely valuable and we're a market leader from the technological perspective we don't just think about that right we don't just say hey that's good enough we actually think about how do you harden all the sensitive and encrypted information around the private key? How do you uh, manage and harden the API interfaces? How do you manage the deposit addresses that people are interacting with? And I, I liken it to um, you have a lot of gold in a castle. You mm -hmm. put your castle up on a mountain. Uh, you put a moat around the castle. You put some snakes and some crocodiles in the water. Uh, mm -hmm. And you build a very high wall, right? You create lots of different adverse uh, events in order mm -hmm. for someone to try to get to the valuable part of the resource, right? And that's how we think about things at, at Fireblocks from what we call a defense in depth perspective. So it's not just MPC, right? It is one great component, but it's how do you put all of these other components utilizing things like Intel SGX, utilizing deep encryption, uh, and, and all these other components to then mitigate a lot of the risk of operating in digital assets. Wow. You know, for thank you for 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 the metaphor because I think for people who are not deep into you know the terminology, they might not be able to picture it. So uh, that was a great explanation. Um, another thing that has uh, you know been a buzzword in in a way is of course crypto custody. Yep. How how has the interest in crypto custody from clients increased or decreased over the past years? And what do you think this trend is going to be like in the future? Yeah, look, I think if you look at the crypto native space. Uh, it's suffering from uh, like a broad-based skepticism, right? Good for good or for bad, right? Given the events that have occurred, right? Um, you know, in traditional financial markets, you have custodians. And I think no one really questions if a licensed custodian is holding the asset that they're supposed to be holding, right? You wouldn't go to JP Morgan or BNP Paribas Security Services and say, are you actually holding what I gave you, right? Because they're a licensed institution that is regulated as such. What you're seeing in the crypto space, though, is even a questioning of those licensed custodians, right? Whether or not they're actually holding the assets that you anticipate that they're holding, whether or mm. not they have enough balance sheet to cover a risk of loss. I think it's one thing for a BNY Mellon to come in and be a custodian in the space, but you're looking at the idea that you have custodians in the space that have a smaller balance sheet than the customers they're executing custody for. So there's a real question about counterparty risk and how do you evaluate that? even in the circumstances that they're regulated. And I think there's been this realization that's been happening amongst a lot of folks around that. So from our perspective, we're seeing a bigger push towards what we call self-custodial technology. I, I reiterated this first. Mm -hmm. Everyone takes technology risk, 
right? Whether or yes. not you're using a licensed custodian, right, that is managing the private key information, uh, private key material on your behalf, or you're doing self-custodial technology, you're all taking a technology risk. You're taking technology risk to the technology that they're using. You're taking technology risk to the technology that a third party, you know, infrastructure provider like Firebox provides. That it just, is it's, it's just a matter of how how, how much risk it's a matter of how to much take, risk, right? right? It's a matter of like how much risk you're willing to take. It's a matter of um, what does that technology look like on that side? It's a matter of if someone is managing the private key on your behalf and something goes wrong, do you have enough balance sheet to cover that? Right. Do you enough? Do they have enough balance sheet to cover that? Right. And mm -hmm. so really, we think there, there's an interesting place for self-custodial technology. And then we think there's an interesting place for like custodians that have the right type of balance sheet to really operate in the space. Right. So, you know, if you look at what we've done with folks like BNY Mellon, we're excited about that opportunity because it represents a really large traditional financial institution with the type of balance sheet and the type of um, trust in the space that were that is required to, I think, grow and scale, let's say, institutional custody, right? And so I think that's an exciting thing for us, for everything else, right? And I think for even for folks that are institutions and regulated, we believe self-custody is a really good solution, right? Uh, and we think that providers like us that only focus on the technology part of things, right? We don't have other businesses in financial services. We don't have a trading business. We don't have a brokerage business. We don't have a lending business. We're solely focused on providing really best-in-class technology. That's the type of partner you you want to go into custodial, into a custodial or, or techno technologically custodial relationship with. You know, we're like still in the frontier of you know cryptocurrency. We're still, it's like it's it's really something that uh is it's always uh you could say very it's moving it's changing all the time and like any innovation right you have that period where there's like uh you know you really have to be a risk taker or right. you know to, to be confident to get into into cryptocurrency uh but then of course there's a lot of confidence there's a lot of hope for web3 and crypto in the future but you know we have with the amount of scams that we've seen so far um how significant is it in terms of impacting the concern over crypt, uh, cybersecurity and Web3 and crypto in the future? And, and on are scams going to be easier or harder to handle when you, know, you compare it to Web2? Look, so I, I think in anything, folks have to think about value-driven decisions, right? Uh, whether or not you choose to invest in equities, whether or not you choose to invest in gold, whether or not you choose to invest in crypto, right? There should be a thesis and an understanding of why you're investing in what you're investing and the due diligence to think about what is the project, what are they adding, what's the value, right? That should be to invest in any asset class. That should be like the set of questions that you ask yourself. It shouldn't just be about, oh, there's, you know, 1200% return on my asset, right? Uh, it mm -hmm. is, what is the benefit? What is the project trying to do? What's the utility of that project? Right. And do I believe in that thesis in terms of what it's doing? Right. I think people are becoming more and more educated in terms of the questions that they should ask. The second thing is, how do they think about security? Right. How what's their security philosophy? How are they managing assets? How are they managing things like security around smart contracts, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So I think that is the second question that that I think folks should should really start to ask. Now, I think we're seeing more value-driven Web3 projects, right? I think you're starting to see the utilization of things like NFTs for like real 
world use cases on the retail side for you know uh, other bases uh, and exposure into other real assets. And I think that is exciting. I think you start to see more interoperability between the assets that people hold every day and bringing those on chain and the digitally native assets that are created, right? And bringing them towards, you know, the broader investment class, right? And so I think that's a that's an exciting thing for 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 everyone. In terms of scams, right? I I think look, across the board they're they're good and bad players, right? I, I mm. think that when you when you think about what that means, um, you know, in FX, right, we've seen it. In in equities, we've seen it on the junk bond and penny stock side. Uh, you know, we've seen this proliferation. We think that more regulation helps mitigate a lot of the risk around these scams. But we think broader consumer education also helps to mitigate a lot of the risk around these scams. So if you think about what we're seeing a lot of in the space, we're seeing a lot of effort by Web3 firms, by even retail firms to think about how do I educate consumers around Web3? How do I educate them around digital assets? How do I start to make their engagement with digital assets feel like it's a part of their everyday life, right? Think about where the future could go, right? It could go that tomorrow you buy a ticket for a concert and that ticket is an NFT. You don't know. You don't feel the difference about whether it is an NFT or it's not an NFT or just a regular ticket or not. But potentially mm. how that application occurs, like the entitlements you get as a part of holding that NFT, um, all of these different components might change the way that musicians or retailers are interacting with different customers because of this utilization of the technology. So we think there's a, a really broad, let's say, area of value that could occur, right? And to focus kind of just only on the fact that there have been some scams I, I think it's kind of uh, doesn't do a service to Web3. It's really how do we educate people to identify those? How does the industry be more proactive about identifying those and calling them out? And then how do we enable people to ask the right questions to really question whether or not they should invest or should really allocate capital uh, towards those type of projects? So I think that's kind of the process that I think folks need to go through and, and the space needs to support. And I think we're already seeing that happen right now. Yeah, it's it's not like a black and white answer, right? It's like more like, comprehensive mm -hmm. in all aspects. Now, lastly, I think we still have to go back to the crypto winter. I mean, yeah. uh, a lot of folks listening are probably just, you know, they want to know, right? What are the key things that can end their crypto winter or, or boost the growth of the market again? I know that's a hard question, but um, from your side, what do you think? Yeah, look, on a crypto winter side, I I think over the next few months, you're going to see some large institutions enter into the digital asset space, whether they enter in it for NFT custody or they're entering into it to support uh, retail consumer uh, retail uh, projects, or they're doing it for digital custody uh, and brokerage, just like a fidelity, right? You saw the announcement around TPI cap uh, in Europe from a broker's perspective and, and their digital asset business. We've seen what Fidelity's done. Uh, obviously, folks like DBS have a, a digital asset offering for, I think, high net, wealth, uh, high net worth. And we're seeing kind of the exploration across the board for that. I think as more of these institutions come into the space and provide infrastructure and validate the asset class or continue to validate the asset class, I think you'll start to see kind of a, a movement toward, towards that. Now, on the digitally native side, you need retail, right? It, it's something. But Retail has to have access, but they also have to have like the right secure controls, right? And so you're seeing clarity and regulation in terms of uh, what should be done for, for folks to be able to engage in a space in the right licensing process. 
lending as we see that continue to kind of proliferate globally, then you'll see kind of a, a broader coordination in, in terms of large players stepping in and providing that access to retail. And I think you'll start to see digital assets as a whole uh, becoming more relevant in, in different use cases, whether that's carbon credits or, or broader NFTs or ESG bonds or whatever that might be, tokenized fiat, right? We're going to start to see and, and be interacting with digital assets more in 2023. And I think that view of how you continue to interact in that way uh, will drive a lot of kind of the resurgence uh, around digital assets as a whole. So again, I don't think it happens in the first half of 2023. My my prediction is you're looking at a you know Q3, Q4 basis, I think, mm-hmm. for, for a mm-hmm. little bit of that turn to occur. But uh, I think we're we're quite excited about when that turn does happen, uh, being you know a, a critical part of the infrastructure to enable that. That's still a long way to go. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like to end our talk, I think I, I just want to ask you to to give a little takeaway for for our listeners who who may be you know uh, you know happy to to hear what you've been talking about and and the prospects of of you know this winter ending. Uh, but all in all, there, what what's your advice for our listeners who are either startups or entrepreneurs or, or corporates? Yeah, look, I, I think it's to keep building, right? It, it's to to think and focus on the product market fit, right? To determine very quickly what your thesis around digital assets will be, whether digitally native assets or other real assets, right? And then build and, and focus on that. Um, finding the right partners becomes extremely important in, in doing that, right? And, and figuring out how you can get to market quickly and validate what you've built and the products that you built will be extremely important. So, you know, that's kind of the, the quick takeaway from my end. Thank you so much, Stephen, for being with us here today. And uh, I look forward to talking to you even more in 2023 if we can find a time. I'm sure we're going to have something to talk about. <laughs> Anyways, yes. And, and for those who are listening and want to know more about Fireblocks and Texas, you can always go to our website. As for now, Steve and I will say goodbye. Sarika. Bye-bye. Texas, sparking innovative thoughts.